You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I'd like to pay my respects to country and to all the elders past, present and emerging who've been part of the struggle for so long for sovereignty and self-determination. Content warning, the following program contains references to sexual violence. If you or someone you care for are negatively impacted by this, please call the Women's Information Referral Exchange at WIRE on 1300 134 130 or the National Sexual Assault Counselling Service on 1800 737 732. The Trans Mountain Pipeline Project is a controversial multi-billion dollar expansion of existing crude and refined oil transportation infrastructure by the Canadian settler government that proposes to triple its current capacity from 300,000 barrels per day to 890,000. The pipeline spans a distance of 1,150 kilometres across Alberta and British Columbia and has already recorded a total of 84 spills since its initial construction in the 1960s. Indigenous peoples say that they have not given proper consent for the current expansion, which violates their land and self-determination rights and threatens their environmental and cultural survival. On today's show, we'll hear from Sukwakmak land protector Kanohus Manuel, also known as Kanohus Freedom, talking about how Sukwakmak people are resisting the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion and the ongoing impacts of colonialism and white supremacy by asserting sovereignty on their own territory through various direct action campaigns, including the Tiny House Warrior campaign in operation since 2017, which utilises a number of specially constructed mobile tiny houses to picket the various on-site camps for pipeline construction workers, notoriously known as man camps, that are responsible for hundreds of violent crimes, including sexual assault, sex trafficking and mass murder against Indigenous women, men and communities. Hello, everybody. My name is Kanahus Paski. I'm from the Sukhwatmuk and the Tanaka Nations in so-called British Columbia, Canada. We are unceded, unsurrendered, no treaty signed here in our territory, coming from 180,000 square kilometers of unceded lands. And we come from the mountains. Everything pretty well west of the Rockies going into so-called British Columbia. We've never signed a treaty here with the colonial governments of Great Britain, Canada, nor British Columbia. And we're fighting hard for our lands. We're fighting for our sovereignty and our self-determination, our human rights to be and exist and live and breathe free on our lands with no interference by the colonial governments. And right now we're in a big battle against Canada as Canada has purchased the Trans Mountain Pipeline and they propose with this expansion to transport 890,000 barrels of bitumen per day from the Alberta tar sands through the Edmonton Terminal all the way to the Coast Salish Territories and the Salish Sea out near Burnaby um, Vancouver. BC is, has no treaties signed right now, except for the northeastern corner of, of the province of BC. 
for people that don't know the geographical size of BC, it's around the size of Washington, Oregon, and California combined. So it's a big geographical area. And there has been never any land agreements or a treaty or surrender signed with the colonial government. So really, the colonial governments are illegally occupying our lands, unceded um, Indigenous territories in BC. I'm a mother of four. I have four freedom babies, and we call them freedom babies because we don't register them with the Canadian government. One of the reasons why we chose to do this is because we really need to stand up and assert our sovereignty as Indigenous people, and that includes reclaiming our birth practices. It was a Statlia mother, one of the neighboring nations over, that was pregnant at the same time as, as my first pregnancy as well. And she said, no, I'm not going to register my children with the Canadian government. I'm not going to get a birth certificate. I'm not going to get an Indian status card. I'm going to have my babies. And she really looked at the Litwat Indigenous sovereignty movement because there was the generation before us that refused to do that with their children. And now they have three generations that are freedom babies. When she gave birth, it was one of the most beautiful experiences that I've ever witnessed giving birth in her unceded, unsurrendered territory. And it gave me so much empowerment and inspiration that I chose to have my births as she did on the land and free out on our territory. And we're really leading the way for this freedom baby movement here in so-called Canada. We haven't had any contact or, or any interference by the Canadian government as of now by not registering our children with them. We continue to homeschool our children. We continue on our path of decolonization with our own healing and reaching out to our own doctors and healers within our community and other communities because in Vancouver area we have a large you know, Chinese population that helps to treat our people with the traditional Chinese medicine and you know, our traditional medicines as well, the, the indigenous healers that continue to practice our ways of healing. So really it makes us look at our own sovereignty, you know, our own education, our own you know, medical system and our own healing practices, bringing them back to life. But it's the traveling part that really our freedom of mobility and our freedom to be able to travel across the borders that are being impacted. Uh, my children traveled down to the Mayan Highlands to spend um, some time on a youth exchange uh, with the Indigenous Life School program that they are a part of. And when they returned and they were crossing through Chiapas, they got detained. And these are Indigenous children from Canada and Puerto Rico. So they are dual citizen, but we refuse to get documentation for them and travel on our own traditional documents. And that's something that we're going to continue to push into the future is, is getting our own documentations so that our young people that refuse to be registered with Canada can travel you know, internationally. Um, right now, what the Canadian government is pushing is a modern-day treaty process but we opt out of that treaty process and their other, they give us two options to deal with this unsettled land question, as they call it. And there's two ways, the comprehensive lands policy and the BC treaty process, and both are extinguishment. They both extinguish our, our rights and our title to our land and, and the colonial governments grant us back a fee simple um, title and like a Canadian, pretty well, they, they want us 
assimilated into Canadian society with own fee simple title lands and pay tax on it and just be a contributing part of Canadian society. And that's not who we are. We are distinct cultures that have governance structures, culture, language, dance, songs, stories, histories, families, lineage that goes back hundreds of generations, thousands of generations. We say we've been here for hundreds of thousands of years you know, since the beginning of time, since time immemorial, that's how long that our people have, have been on these lands. And for the colonial governments to assume that they have jurisdiction and authority based on some very outdated and racist laws and notions of doctrine of discovery and papal bull, where they say, you know, that our lands were empty and they could claim, you know, our lands on behalf of the, the queen, which is false. And we know those are outdated and racist and they're so white supremacist in their nature. And that's where it start, needs to start to shift and society needs to start to, you know, grow out and grow or grow up out of those outdated racist ways. And it has everything to do with land. Our fight is for land. Our land is where everything comes from, our economy, our language, our culture. It's the land. And the only way that we're going to have full liberation is with our land. The only way that we're going to reclaim back our economies is through land. They forced us on to 0.2% of our lands. That's how much the Indian reserves are in Canada. If you add them up, it's 0.2% of land. So... You know who's going to be rich and who's going to be poor. And we all know it's easier to fight the poor people. And that's where we've been. And Canada has kept us there by claiming 99.8% of our land and getting very wealthy off of it. And we're seeing it right now with the extraction projects of the Alberta tar sands. Indigenous people have been displaced off these lands and, you know, dispossessed off these lands. And, and when we fight back, we are oppressed. And we've been resisting for 152 years since, and even prior to that, you know, since Canada was formed, we've been fighting back. And we see generations of my family fighting back and generation of other freedom fighters in BC and Canada that are, are fighting back and it's not stopping the grandchildren and, you know, the great grandchildren and, this Trans Mountain Pipeline is originally, uh, it's an old 1953 Kinder Morgan Pipeline. It was originally built by Kinder Morgan, you know, a Texas-based company. And this old de decrepit pipeline now is still is in existence. And what they want to do right now is twin this existing pipeline. And there was so much resistance by both um, indigenous peoples and environmentalists and just the general public in, in BC and Canada that Kinder Morgan end up selling the pipeline. It was too risky. And Canada purchased the pipeline, you know, in quote saying they're, they'll, they'll be able to ensure that this construction goes through, knowing that they're saying this because they're going to, you know, violate more indigenous rights pushing this pipeline through. The Indigenous people all throughout this pipeline have given their no consent. But the Canadian government has always been able to find that one Indian, that one Native person, that one brown face to put their name on that pipeline to manufacture this consent. It's a facade of consent, but there is no consent for this pipeline. 
101 on Indigenous politics here in Canada is that when we talk about chief and council system, when we talk about the Department of Indian Affairs or the chief and council system, what we're talking about is colonization. Because how the government was able to even get access onto our lands was to make the Indian Act. And this Indian Act is what really forced us onto Indian reserves and made us wards of the state where where the government can control indigenous peoples. They keep con- they keep track of us through numbers. Those chief and council that they elect in place are elected under the Indian Act, which is a colonial construct. Those chief and council get paid by the federal government, so their paycheck comes from the feds. That's why we're saying when the government is going to get this consent, they're going to their own colonial branches and institutions, the chief and council system, in order to get that consent. They're not going to the peoples, and and the rightful title holders are the people, the men, the women, the children, the hunters, the fishermen, the berry pickers, the basket makers, our indigenous peoples on the ground. They're the ones that have the say on whether they allow industry in their territory or not. And so that's one thing that really needs to be understood because people say, well, this chief, he said yes to this pipeline. No, we don't have chiefs like that here. We have federally imposed chiefs that get paid by the federal government. They're not our chief. We come from a matrilineal system where our women are the authority. The women are the inheritors of the title. The women are the decision makers. We are the women. We are the mothers. We are the ones that are the caretakers for our nation. And we look out for the interest of our nation because we're looking out for our children and our grandchildren. So when we look back and we talk about our governance structure, we would be going to the women. Do we have your consent for this pipeline? But do you think the big oil and gas companies and Justin Trudeau are going to the women to get consent? No, they're not. They're going to their manufactured leaders to get that manufactured consent so they could continue as business as usual. And so on Sukhwatmuk territory, we have seven of these federal Indian band chiefs and councils that have signed some type of mutual benefit agreement or cooperation agreement with now Trans Mountain Pipeline. This is all without the consent of the real title holders on the ground. And so what the government has done is now, since they know they can't get the consent, now they're forming other organizations or indigenous groups, in quote, that they're calling it, indigenous brown indigenous businessmen to purchase a portion of this pipeline. And this is all without the indigenous consent and the indigenous women have passed declarations after declarations, you know, denouncing these mountain, these trans mountain man camps, as well as the pipeline, and that there is no consent for this pipeline to pass. Collective consent. You're listening to Sukwakmak Land Protector, Kanahus Freedom, talking about how Sukwakmak people in so-called British Columbia, Canada, are resisting the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion and the ongoing impacts of colonialism and white supremacy by asserting their sovereignty in their Sukwakmak territory. The tiny houses on wheels has come about, you know, over looking at the tiny houses that were popped up all over Standing Rock, I myself had a house built by some 
amazing builders in Portland, Oregon that came to Standing Rock to build me and my four Freedom Babies a house on the front lines. And we wintered it there in Standing Rock. And the Sukhotmuk Women Warrior Society really spearheaded the Tiny House Warriors, which is a mission to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We're building 10 tiny houses on wheels to put in the path of this Trans Mountain Pipeline. We have built six so far, and we have four, actually five, at Blue River right now, which is in the heart of Sukhotmuk Territory. It's actually stopping the construction of a thousand-man man camp. And we're stopping the man camps in order to stop the pipeline. They want to hire and house a thousand pipeline construction workers there in Blue River. These man camps are linked to increased violence against women. And Canada right now, with with the final report from the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women Inquiry, which is a federal inquiry, has stated that genocide exists here in Canada against Indigenous women of girls. And that's what we've been saying all along. The violence, including sexual attacks and rapes, these small communities are not equipped to deal with. What these companies are suggesting to communities is to just increase their rape kits. You know, rape kits are are if you get raped, then you can get the proper testing done before you go shower and all of this stuff. Sometimes these small communities don't even have rape kits and they're, you know, sent two hours, three hours outside of the community not being able to shower or you know, and so a lot of women aren't even reporting these rapes in their communities. And we've seen it ever since the Hudson Bay Company and the and the road camps and the railway camps that were formed in our territory. There was rapes and sexual attacks against our women then, and they continue to be now. It doesn't matter. They could have all the protocols and workers' protocols in place, but they can't control those men, uh, men that are pulled away from their families and, and communities for sometimes months on end. And most of them are transient workers. They don't have no, you know, connection to the community or accountability in those communities. And so a lot of time there's violence, you know, the the drug and alcohol, you know, abuse increases in, in these communities. And the children and the women are just not safe. That's why we've been in Blue River for one year, stopping this man camp from being built. We wintered it there. We were in 10 feet of snow all winter long. We had to deal with a bombardment of racist oil sand workers. They spent their winters attacking us on the front lines. And death threats. We continue to have death threats, you know, on the front lines and can continue to have oil sands workers, tar sands workers putting out racist videos about us and encouraging people to to call the police on us. And and so we've been dealing with all of this harassment as Indigenous women. We need to be safe. You know, when we go out as land defenders, we need to be safe. We need to have our, our own security. We need to have our own national defense for our women when they go and exercise their rights to live on their land, to stop resource extraction projects, to say no to man camps. We have rights to say no. We have rights to our land that allow us to say no, and that must be respected. Some of the things that that we're dealing with right now is just the harassment of oil sands, tar sands, pipeline workers coming to our tiny house warriors village, which is mainly women and children and elders and land land defenders where we we are all food sovereignties and we're all 
food sovereignists, so we all depend on the land. We're wild food harvesters. We've always been very hunter picker, hunter berry picker, nomadic, you know, on our land. That's why we have tiny houses on wheels. But we asserted our rights on many different stands. One was against Sun Peak Ski Resort, and we built a beautiful cordwood house and sweat lodges and cabin only for them to be built burnt down to the ground and bulldozed down to the ground by the Canadian government. And this is why we have tiny houses on wheels as well, because we don't want to see the same thing happen to our other beautiful homes um, when we go out onto our territory. They're threatened by our homes on our land. They don't want to see Indigenous people leaving the Indian Reserve 0.2% and going and asserting their right to their land and taking land back. It's very threatening to Canada. It brings a lot of risk and uncertainty to their investments and their business as usual approach um, is, you know, challenged over because of our rights and our title. And that's what we, we continue to want to do. And we continue to, you know, bring tiny house warriors and our other organizations, Indigenous Network on Economies and Trade over to Europe and our big divestment campaigns by connecting you know, from the local direct action on the ground to an international level. And that's that's what my father and my grandfather's work has always been, is right from the ground, right to the international level. And, and we're always about, you know, it's this is the people's movement. And the people are the ones that have the power. They're the ones that have, have the creativity. And they're the ones that have the energy to be able to continue to resist. And so, you know, it's the, it's really the, the people and it's really the mothers that are really taking this very serious right now here in Canada. And right now where we are located in Blue River, we've been here for a year, but it's also we're also right directly across from the Blue River campground, which is frequented by European tourists and Canadian and American tourists that come, you know, every day is they're coming by and they're coming by our camp as well, you know, asking questions and we're, you know, having these real long conversations with people from the Netherlands and from, from Switzerland and from Finland and all around the, these European countries, just shocked and astounded at, at what Canada has done because they really love native people. And so we're finding a lot of solidarity and allies in Europe. And we want to continue to, you know, reach out with other allies, both in the divestment movements, but also the anarchist movements as well. We're going to be compiling like a, a list of actions that we, you know, that we condone um, and that we, you know, we, we respect everybody's, you know, autonomous way they want to organize. And I think that what we have to talk about now in our movements is, is organizing in these small groups and able to, you know, pull off actions that we don't need to sacrifice 10 people, 20 people, 500 people or 200 arrests. We can, you know, get as much information exposure we can get as much power hitting against our target with just three people but very creatively and artistically and so i think those are the lines that we want to talk about but of course we're always about direct action i mean we're all all about the war against the machines these machines are destroying our lands right now they're they're the ones threatening our lands there's heavy machinery being you know moved and transported there's continued to be you know heavy haulers full of pipes that are being transported from Vancouver all the way up to stockpiles in Alberta they're ready to lay those pipes and we saw in Standing Rock they were able to lay around 100 pipes a day you know we come from a rugged mountain terrain that has to go through a lot of rivers and creeks and and 
everyone's dreams, but we want to, you know, work with everybody. We're going to have some public gatherings that we're asking people to come out to. Some of them are going to be direct action oriented gatherings that we want. And we will be putting a call out for all of our um, anarchist allies to come, you know, to the front lines to meet us there. Follow the Tiny House Warriors, you know, Facebook page as well of the, as our website. We're going to be putting all of our summer gatherings and actions. And this is when we're going to be putting the, you know, asking people to come and, and join us and really looking and strategizing around how are we going to fight this pipeline and looking at Standing Rock as, as a case study, looking at Sun Peaks and our resistance there as a case study for our own resistance and seeing how some of these mass global uh, mobilizations and, and just massive indigenous mobilizations like they're at Standing Rock you know, what are the successful successes and what are the pitfalls in, in organizing mass mobilizations like that? And so I think that for us as Indigenous people, we are a so-called minority population where we don't have the numbers like our Indigenous relatives in, in South America do when they're able to mobilize, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 Indigenous people. You know, for us here in Canada, we don't have those numbers. So we have to be very creative in the way that we resist having five men teams or five women teams or, you know, five people together can really create a big message, a lot of, you know, um, impact and a lot of effects and expose, you know, what we're doing as Indigenous people Another thing too, the the more pressure we put, it, it affects the governments and the these these governments' credit rating, including you know BC and Canada. Yeah, we do want to affect their credit rating. They're violating Indigenous rights to get access to lands. They don't even have the clear title to be even you know claiming our lands as theirs. So there's a lot of different ways, these banks, a lot of the money, and I think that's that's really smart. The divestment movement, you know, hit them where it hurts. We always know they don't see nothing else. They don't see tears. They don't care about our tears, but they care about their money. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today we heard from Sukwakmak land protector Kanahis Freedom talking about the various ways in which Sukwakmak people are resisting the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion in so-called British Columbia and asserting sovereignty on their own territory, including their Tiny House Warrior Movement and the Freedom Babies Movement. If you want to find out more about this important struggle and how to support it, go to tinyhousewarriors.com or check them out on your socials. Today's audio was sourced with thanks from Final Straw Radio under Creative Commons licence on archive.org. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.
Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Those people who have no land rights haven't got justice, but neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia, brought to you by 3CR Community Radio. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots and the Aboriginal embassy on the lawns outside the old parliament house. We will not go away. And as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass. And that's here forever, until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.